Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Do No Harm ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. What started out as a normal summer day for both the Bright family. I put the sprinkler in the front yard. We were outside um, just playing in the water. And the Butler family. Typical 4th of July, just cooking some barbecue, having a good time with some other family members. Turned into a nightmare. I just heard, it, all of a sudden, it was just this blood-curdling scream. And I tried to catch him, and he kind of spun around and hit on his backside and fell back, hit his head, you know, fell back and hit his head on the floor. Two moments, two accidents, each thrusting these parents into a medical and legal maze that neither family ever imagined they would find themselves in. Even at this point, it did not even dawn on me that they were accusing me of child abuse. It don't matter. You were going to demonize that man regardless because it was what they do. What happens when the institutions we trust to keep kids safe? Mom, uh -oh. baby, dad, one house, that's not an option. Right at this point. Are what put them in danger. I started losing confidence in the whole system. I didn't trust it. And again, my big question was why? Over the last six episodes of this series, we've told you about a medical and legal system that's committed to a noble cause, protecting children from abuse. And what happens when that system goes too far? By the time we got to court, the kids had been injured, but not by their parents, by the state. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Laura Beal, the host of Dr. Death, about what I've learned about the child welfare system over the past two years. Also, you'll remember in the previous episode, we told you that the two mothers at the center of this story had never met. Well... We have an update on that. Hi, Melissa. <laughs> Hi, Sade. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing good. You're How doing about yourself? All right. Can't ask for much more this year, can we? Uh, I don't think we can. Well, you know what? I look at it like this. We've been through something very, you know, similar, very hard, very tough. So I think it makes us very strong. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. My two hands alone can hold you back from harm. From NBC News and Wondery, I'm Mike Hicksonball. And this is a special episode of Do No Harm.
On Dr. Death, Laura Beale tells the stories of doctors who've strayed from their commitment to do no harm. In this series, we've told the stories of parents who rushed to hospitals with injured babies, only to discover that some of the doctors they thought were treating their children were actually working in tandem with law enforcement. Two very different stories, but they both deal with the trust we place in professionals and what happens when that trust is betrayed. And we're going to change things up a little bit today. Uh, Laura is going to be joining me, and she'll be the one asking the questions. It's great to be here, Mike. I, I am so happy to have the opportunity to discuss this story. It really affected me profoundly, I have to say, as a mom. It affects anyone profoundly, but especially like just from the point of view of a mother thinking about this happening. It's it's been really it's been really haunting me for days and days, I have to say. So Well now you know how I felt for the last two years. The whole story was just incredible. The first thing I have to ask you is how are these children doing? As far as they can tell, Dylan and Melissa don't see lingering it trauma when they when they observe Mason and Charlotte. Um, you know, you hear in the recording Mason's horse cry and, and Charlotte being disoriented um, after being in the care of strangers for two days and being injured in that in that time. But they, they're so small, they don't remember it. Um, and so, so they, they don't see it. it it's, it's, it's tricky to know, though, because, you know, there's been a lot of research over the past, you know, several years. And, and it's come up as we've seen child separations at the border where physicians say, you know, being a, an infant or a toddler being taken from their parent for even a couple days is has lasting lifelong consequences. And so it's hard to know. It's it's one of those things that's really hard to know, but they're doing well. And same for the butlers. Um, their children were similar age. They were gone for much longer, but they seem like they're adjusting well. Malia's into kindergarten, Charlotte's in preschool now. Um, it, it seems like both families are happy and and doing their best to move on. Yeah, I mean, just um, the idea of being separated from your children, even normal separations when you have children are very difficult. The first time I took my oldest child, my little girl, to daycare, she was nine months old. I stayed home for nine months, and then I went back to work at the Dallas Morning News. And I remember I took her to daycare, and I sat in the parking lot and cried for a good 15 or 20 minutes, just sobbing at leaving her. And I was thinking about that when the Bright's children were taken away and just that kind of anguish that I couldn't even begin to to fathom. I mean, I one of the things I was wondering about is how you came across this story in in the first place. So two years ago, I was uh, an investigative reporter at the Houston Chronicle, and I, I remember this very clearly. I was my wife was actually like had just gone into labor with our fourth child, um, and I remember it was early stages. She didn't have the baby for a couple more days, but I remember getting a text message from a fellow reporter at the Chronicle um, named Carrie Blakinger, and Carrie had been covering the Bright case in real time. And you know she had written a, a front page, a couple front page news stories uh, about their their court victory and kind of the mistakes made by CPS. And Carrie texted me to say, "Hey, do you want to do you want to investigate CPS with me?" Um, and I was like, "Sure, let's get in touch next month. I'm going to be on paternity leave here pretty soon." Um, and so that was kind of the beginning. And you know, just like you from the very start of this, you know, I had never heard of. For, I, I'm going to reveal my my privilege here I'm I'm a you know middle class college educated white guy and so the idea that CPS would take children from people without a good reason who hadn't you know for sure abused their kids was shocking to me <clears throat> I know that's not shocking to a lot of people in different in in the black community who have been kind of living that reality for decades but it was shocking to me uh, from from my lived experiences and so and then on the extra layer i'd never heard of the field of child abuse pediatrics and so this idea that there are specialized doctors at children's hospitals who are looking behind you know in medical records in, in 
patients who come into the ER to see if, you know, very small children's injuries match parents' stories. Um, and, and, you know, with the goal of trying to protect them from abuse. But I had never heard of any of that. And so, you know, as a reporter, I'm like, we're going to do that. And so I, I spent, you know, Carrie and I spent better better part of a year investigating this and, and, and writing about a lot more than just the Bright family, um, investigating the this, this system and, and the way it works and the way it doesn't work. And how did you find the other families? So, we, I mean, the, the, the written series, um, Do No Harm, that we wrote in collaboration between the Houston Chronicle and NBC News, um, we spotlighted um, several families. And in the end, I, you know, we, we, we talked with, you know, close to 70 families who shared similar experiences, mostly in Texas, but also in states across the country. And initially it was just, you know, CPS is tough. It, like, you know, just like in healthcare, there are privacy rules. And so I can't just go down to the courthouse and ask for a listing of every court case in which a child abuse pediatrician testified. Um, and so it was a lot of networking and, and calling <clears throat> lawyers and searching a, a, the appeals court cases that do become public. And I spent months talking to 50 Melissa Brights and Dylan Brights um, from across Texas, mostly initially. And uh, it, it was kind of, you know, we, we, you could be kind of begin to find a pattern um, in, in some of these cases where you, where you see where the system kind of breaks down. Um, but one thing we could never do is quantify it. People ask me, how widespread is this? Is this happening every day? Or, And it's impossible to say because this is kind of one of these intractable systems where you can't just ask the government and get public records requests to find every case. So it's really challenging reporting. It was, it was just so incredible. Well, I actually read your initial series uh, on this case. So I, I knew I had a general sense before I started the podcast of what was going to happen. But I have to say it was it was so hard, especially that that third episode I listened. I was actually out for a run. And when I heard the tape of Melissa, I honestly, I mean, I thought I was going to have to stop and throw up. I mean, mm. just the audio, even knowing what was happening, the audio was just so deeply, deeply disturbing. I, I'm just wondering what's been the reaction from other people. I think a lot of people have had that same reaction. I've had multiple messages from people who said, I felt nauseous listening to that, a lot of them being parents. And, um, you know, that's, it's hard. It's hard to know that it, this is traumatizing just to hear that tape. Uh, I will say the first time I heard it, um, I was blown away. And and I, I, I really think that when I heard that audio, it kind of crystallized to me why this story was important. Um, because I, I think like nobody thinks that we shouldn't have CPS or that the, the state shouldn't step in when small vulnerable children are at risk of being abused or when there's clear signs of a pattern of abuse or serious neglect, not just, you know, poverty-related issues. But I think the, the risk is that we end up thinking, well, I mean, if you can prevent one child from being killed, then you should just be better safe than sorry, better to take a kid and then give them back later. And when you hear that tape, it's impossible to hear that and think, yeah, that's good policy. There's this immediate visceral reaction to the sound of a mother being, having her children taken from her and the children confused. And you hear later in the series, kind of the trauma that they experience, they can't even articulate it. And so it kind of forces the conversation now, like, okay, yes, we should protect children, but how do we find the balance so that we're not needlessly traumatizing kids in the process? I mean, you know, the story itself is, is just shocking in and of itself, but what, what the, was there anything in particular that surprised you while you were working on it? I, like I said, I think I think the whole thing surprised me from the start. I've done investigative reporting focused on physicians and healthcare and hospitals, but social services and CPS and child welfare was new. And I think, like a lot of people, I just made assumptions about what CPS does. And um, so I think 
the thing that was most stunning to me as I looked through each of these cases, not just the Brights, but also the Butlers and dozens of others, was the deference that the Child Welfare Agency, the CPS investigators gave to the child abuse pediatricians. And you can understand why they do that. I mean, when you're a social worker and you know maybe you have an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree in social work and you're not a doctor, you haven't gone to, you know, the child abuse pediatrician not just completed medical school, they also did a three-year fellowship in identifying signs of injuries. And so when they file a report, it's supposed to be the beginning of CPS's investigation. Okay, the doctor says these injuries are concerning for abuse or consistent with abuse. When a CPS worker gets a report like that, just saying these injuries are concerning for abuse, they take that and what I see in case after case after case. They often treat that as instead of the start of the investigation, it is the investigation. And you hear it in the tape. And, and when, C, when CPS comes to take the kids and Melissa's saying, why? But we had the second opinion. The radiologist said, you know, she pointed to actual research papers that shows you can get two skull fractures from a shortfall. And so Melissa's story did potentially match. But when they raise that question with the CPS worker, what's the response? Well, we still have what we have from Texas Children's Hospital. And you see that in case after case where the, the Child Welfare Agency has ceded authority to, the, to physicians who have no you know, authority to remove kids. And, so, and then when you ask the doctors about that, they point back and say, well, it's CPS's job to do the, do the investigation. And so that, I think that's where the, the heart of the problem is. Yeah, that's one thing that was shocking. You know, don't the people who work at CPS, like, are they just automatons sometimes because can you not see yes you have this doctor's report but does that mean you can't see this baby who is hurting himself crying for his mom all night does that not factor in does it not factor in that you have a conflicting opinion I mean all of these when all the other evidence around you is telling you that these are caring parents it's just the the sort of robotic nature of of them doing their job was just so surprising to me the butlers as well i mean there was other than this one report there was no evidence the, that these parents abuse their kids in fact there was a lot of evidence to the contrary and and does that not do you stop thinking once you get that report I think that's the risk. I think I think that's what happens in many cases is, you know, I think um, Dan Fee Wynn, who was the county attorney, whose job was to defend CPS's case, to argue CPS's case in the Bright case. And his, you know, you hear in the, in, in the story that he had doubts about CPS's work on it. And, and his, his big criticism of CPS is like, you have well-intentioned people who are just at some point acting like a robot, like you said. And one thing I should mention is that, you know, throughout this series, we did reach out to CPS and to LeVar and to Naisha to request interviews, but they declined. And so they have the CPS has policies and protocols and, you know, particularly in Texas, but also places in other places across the country. The child abuse pediatricians are often, as in Texas, grant funded by the state child welfare agency, it's the same in other states. And in those contracts, the child abuse pediatricians are the medical authority for CPS. And I think there are times when CPS caseworkers who are more experienced maybe push back, but it's tough. So you keep trying to get in shape and it keeps not working. I'm Lacey Green, a super trainer with body. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And I've got a story you have to hear. I have a client who came to me because she was really frustrated that every gym or trainer she tried made her feel bad because she was a beginner. She had tried it all and she just felt humiliated. And that's when we started working together and I took her through my three-week program called For Beginners Only. Once she realized that she wasn't the problem and that she just needed the right program, she started to get results. And now she's completely unstoppable and feeling so strong and confident. And I can do the same for you. On the Body app, subscribers lose five to 10 pounds consistently in their first month. And I bet you will too. 
In fact, CNN underscore just named Body best fitness app. And right now, Body has a special introductory offer. The next 500 new users who sign up for a year of Body save 72%. That's just 33 cents a day. All you have to do is go to Body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so of every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and for my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake, and then I go crush a workout on the Body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my special introductory offer to you. If you go to body.com to sign up, the next 5,000 new subscribers will get 72% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. Yeah, that's only 33 cents a day to start now and see how fast the pounds come off. And if they don't, you can get your money back, no questions asked. Just go to body.com to save 72% and get life-changing results. That's B-O-D-I.com. While I was listening to this podcast, I kept thinking back to something that happened when my daughter was two years old, same age as Charlotte. My husband had gotten into a habit of swinging her by her hands, and which she loved, loved. It was her favorite thing to do. And as she got bigger, um, she kept saying, higher, daddy, higher. It's, it's, I guess it's a dad thing to like swing your kids. And so... So one day he was in the kitchen, she was about two, and he's got her little hands and he would swing her by the hands. And then at the top of the arc of the swing, he would let go of her briefly and grab her hands again. And she that just thrilled her. She loved it. And she would laugh and squeal and he'd, and he'd swing her again and let go and grab her. And one day he was doing that in the kitchen and she wiggled a little at the top of the swing and he missed her hands and she went flat onto the kitchen floor face down and and that sound of your child hitting a concrete floor is something i will never forget as long as i live and she landed face down and of course we rush over and she's bloody cuz she landed on her nose and her face and she didn't break anything, didn't look like. And after a while, she was she was fine. And the next day was a Sunday. So we go to church and she her face is all bruised up and she's got a black eye and her nose is swollen. She looks terrible. She feels fine, but she looks terrible. And of course, everybody's like, well, what happened? What happened? And And she would say, oh, daddy did it. And just laugh and we would laugh and... But I was thinking about that incident listening to this podcast. I mean, what if she would have fallen on the back of her head? Because probably landing on her nose is what kept her from breaking any bones. And if if that would have happened and we would have gone to the hospital, like what could have happened to us? I think pretty much every parent has a story like that. And and I think one one important thing to point out is like you and like me, the stories I shared, the vast majority of parents who have scares like that, who accidentally hurt their kids, they don't lose them. Um, they take them to the hospital if they need medical care. And, you know, maybe the doctors take a look, maybe CPS gets referred, maybe not. But in the vast majority of, you know, incidents where kids, babies fall a short distance and hit their head, they don't even need medical care. And so when they show up at the hospital, those are the kind of extreme outliers already. And I think it's probably accurate that in most cases, child abuse pediatricians take a look and they say, yeah, that matches the story and the kids go home. The challenge is when you get to this subset of cases where like Mason Bright, you know, you don't normally, you don't expect two skull fractures <clears throat> and subdural bleeding from a short fall. 
but then you have to, you know, there's other factors that come into play. He, well, he fell onto concrete and he had a bleeding disorder. And well, you can get two skull fractures from a short fall. And it's been documented in the medical research. It happens maybe in less than 10% of cases of that height. But uh, we don't know in what percentage of cases is it does that happen when they fall on concrete, for example. Like it might be higher. I also completely understand why we have child abuse pediatricians, why that subspecialty exists. I think. You know, there could there's some conversations that maybe could be had about the interplay between child abuse pediatricians and CPS, um, giving CPS autonomy to, you know, speak with additional doctors, other subspecialists, and making sure that the reports from child abuse pediatricians have the appropriate level of um, nuance, and so. There ha I have seen reports in cases where they say these injuries are diagnostic of abuse. Now, you cover healthcare. That means this is it. These injuries can only be abuse. And th that's almost never the case. You can almost never just declare these are abuse and not an accident. And so there, there should be a conversation, I think, and there's, there's one happening now, I think, in, in medicine about how can we appropriately report our concern to make sure CPS catches it, it you know, looks at this, takes a hard look at it, but without tying their hands and forcing removals when it's not appropriate. It makes you wonder what these stories say broadly about child protective services. And I, I, it, it's horrible when they take kids away unnecessarily, but I, they also get it on both sides. I mean, when they leave kids in dangerous situations, you know, I'm from Dallas. I remember the Sharon Matthews case, you know, and the terrible things that happened to, to that child. And, I think they do protect children, and they are very important, and they have a very important job. You know, I think you're right. CPS has been handed an impossible task. And so I think that is the kind of the big challenge is child abuse is so horrific that we have put a system in place that seeks to catch it before it gets out of hand, before a child is seriously injured, traumatized, or killed. It's impossible. You can never prevent every uh, one of these incidents. I actually think one of the main areas of reform is not in the government, but it's in media um, and in journalism. And I will say in, in working on this series, I real, I've come to discover that there's a certain genre of investigative journalism that is kind of, in some ways low-hanging fruit um, for reporters. And, and you see it in state after state. A child was reported to CPS. CPS began investigation, the child later died. Uh, and Sharon Matthews' case is an example of that. It's horrific. And as a result of the intense media attention and the finger pointing at CPS you know, for failing in those cases, triggers a reaction. Um, there was just a report out of Florida by a team of investigative reporters there um, at USA Today and Gatehouse that, that showed... After this, after the Miami Herald did an investigation showing children dying in the care of CPS or after being reported to CPS, in the aftermath of that, the state instituted this very aggressive, I'll say better safe than sorry approach where we're going to do whatever it takes to protect children. And they vastly expanded the number of removals, mostly cases of neglect or suspicion of neglect. And they overburdened the foster care system to the point that now children in the most recent years have been being sent to unsafe foster homes. And so you can see the the media's role in triggering that unintended consequence. And so, you know, finding a way to be more nuanced in our reporting of these stories as well. CPS is never going to stop every child death. And CPS also gets their share of conspiracy theories, don't they? That's right. I, I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, there's actually in the current world we live in, um, you know, and I've heard from a lot of these people, actually, there's a current, you know, offshoot of the QAnon conspiracy that says, you know, CPS agencies are actually trafficking children. It is complete nonsense. There's no evidence that's the case. These agencies make mistakes. Um, there are bad actors in them for sure. But there's it's just a patchwork of state agencies. There's no global conspiracy to strip children from their parents and to sell them. Um, and so, you know, I've heard from these people and I, th I think, you know, if, if if you have been led to believe that's the case, that CPS is part of a child trafficking network, I would advise that you would rethink where you get some of your information.
I wondered throughout this series about LaVar, and I would love to have known what he was thinking. And you tried to get hold of him. And in episode six, we learned he is actually still working for CPS. What what can you tell us about LaVar? The thing I want you to know about LaVar is what Melissa told me. Um, after I, I reached out to LaVar and spoke with him just very briefly, I was struck by his politeness and kindness to me. Like, I, you know, I've, I'd written a story already about this case. He was named in it. We played the recording. And this case has been, a, I'm sure, a huge headache for him in the aftermath. And he just was so kind. He, he's, he thanked me for the work that journalists do and thanked me for reaching out. I, I was so taken aback by, you, I don't get that a lot. You know, you call people and you, they're the, the subject of a story. It's, you know, often yelling. and, and Oh, yeah. Yes, right. You've you've done this. So I called Melissa afterward and was like, you know, this guy was so kind and respectful. And that's when she revealed to me that and it's something we didn't weren't able to put in the series, but after their case was over and completely settled, Melissa says Lavar approached her in court and told her that he was sorry about the way their case had turned out. And I mean, this is not something that I was able to confirm with LeVar, but according to Melissa, it was a very touching moment for her. And she told me she has no ill feelings about him. And and she knows that he's got a good heart. And for that reason, she's glad he still works in Child Protective Services. And But, um, you know, that was kind of a, a heartwarming, faith-restoring detail that I learned is, you know, this is a system. This story was not about villainous CPS workers. It was about a system that means well and sometimes does harm. So in this podcast, we see the twin trajectories of Dylan and Melissa Bright and Lance and Sharday Butler. And in episode six, you state that black babies brought to the ER are twice as likely as white babies to be evaluated for abuse. What are the consequences of that? The doctors and nurses and social workers are people, and they have their own range of experiences and their own range of implicit bias. And when a black baby comes into the ER, just as you said, if they have subdural bleeding, which is bleeding around their brain, this is the study that I cited there showed that they are twice as likely to be evaluated for abuse. And if you're evaluated for abuse, then that is the beginning of the path toward maybe a CPS referral. Um, and so that's just one data point. I mean, the, the most shocking data point that I came across in all of this reporting was that if you're a black child in America, by the time you turn 18, there is a 50% chance that you have been the subject of a CPS investigation. It's a coin flip. And so the butlers, in some ways, you know, the, the circumstances are different. And, and often these cases involve allegations of neglect that are often tied to poverty issues or addiction. The butler's case is somewhat different. But in some ways, by virtue of that statistic, their experience with CPS was almost more likely than not. Um, and so that was so eye-opening and it's why we told the story in this in this in the way we did um i we told the story of the brights and we we mentioned nothing about race throughout the entirety of their story and you can people can detect that but um we take you and make you feel and and show you what it sounds like when a baby's taken and and then we pivot and we tell you the story of how the, how this played out for this black family who had a child with very similar injuries. And there's lots of differences in their cases, but you can see in the way that their case was handled that there are just differences. And the butlers and their lawyer and a lot of people who've heard this story can, you know, feel that race is a factor in it. If you're like me and can still recognize Mr. Brightside from the first note, and then can't resist screaming it at the top of your lungs, you're a millennial. And if you're a millennial, it's time to add Clarins Multi-Active Cream to your daily routine. Rooted in nature and innovated with science, Clarins has a long legacy of creating industry-first, plant-forward products. Using a skin charger complex made of 2% niacinamide and sea holly bioextract, Clarins Multi-Active Cream has been clinically proven to target the first visible signs of aging 
by smoothing lines and wrinkles, refining pores, evening tone and texture, and strengthening the skin's moisture barrier. While multi-active cream can bring back the golden age of boy bands, it can de-stress your skin. Clarins Multi-Active Cream is available online now. Go to clarins.com slash truecrime and get multi-active day and night cream for 10% off, a free welcome gift, plus free shipping on your first order. That's C-L-A-R-I-N-S dot com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. Clarins.com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. So what kind of reaction have you gotten both from the initial stories that you did on this uh, a year ago and the podcast from CPS and lawmakers and child abuse pediatricians? I would imagine they had some pretty strong feelings. Yeah, I I think... Uh, there's a whole range of responses to that. I, I you know, CPS and, and the lawmaker side in Texas, they're they're looking at potential reforms in this legislative session to try to improve the process to make sure we can protect kids like Sharon Matthews, who really were being abused, while also protecting the rights of parents like the Brights and the Butlers, who, you know, who weren't. Um, and so it's tricky and there's efforts to reform that. I, I've gotten pretty good reaction from lawmakers and, and from, you know, even some CPS officials kind of on background that like these are important things and we're glad you raised them. Uh, I will say, you know, it's been a mi- more contentious, I think, in terms of reaction from the child, ab- child abuse pediatric community. Um, and I've tr- I've tried to frame these stories as like, look, this this is important work that's being done, and they they say they they play important role in saving children's lives. <clears throat> but I will say, having covered healthcare for many years, um, you know, when I would write a story about a heart surgeon who was chronically making mistakes and harming patients, and I would talk to other heart surgeons about that, that you know, the reaction from those other heart surgeons, they would say, yeah, that's a problem. They could do it better. That's outside the standard of care. In this case, when we've highlighted legitimate real problems with individual cases of reports from child abuse pediatricians, cases where they overstate the evidence, misstate the evidence, fail to report a bleeding disorder that's key, um, use hyperbole like saying a child was th- looks like they were thrown from a second story building, a, a, a phrase that has no basis in science. When I've highlighted these things, I would expect, you know, a similar kind of response. You know what? Thanks for pointing that out. That's outside the standard of care. We really shouldn't be. We should be more nuanced in our phrasing. Um, I've gotten none of that. I've um, the child abuse pediatrician that I've heard from. It's a small, small, close knit group of physicians, and uh, they've been very critical of the reporting. I want to make clear: is nobody disputes that the doctors and the social workers should have contact contacted CPS in both the Bright and the Butler case. I think, you know, when a child comes into the hospital and they have serious injuries, it, it makes sense. You know, do the investigation. Our, our series was really focused on investigating what went wrong after that point. And so, you know, there's been, I think, some criticism I see I see out there that, you know, telling these kinds of stories will make people hesitant to report or, or, or somehow that we're arguing that doctors shouldn't notify CPS about concerning injuries. I don't think anyone makes that case. I know the Brights don't, the Butlers don't, their lawyers don't. Dr. Julie Mack doesn't say that. It's really, you know, we should have a high, you know, alert and and report to CPS when physicians see something that's concerning. But it's what CPS does with that information and how they investigate after where the system, you know, started to break down in these cases. What about parents, other parents? Oh, my God. It's impossible to quantify how often this happens. Um, And it's still the case because there's no way of just kind of getting a public record. But I can tell you, I have heard now from, I'm, you know, I haven't tabulated it, but it's certainly more than 600 families from across the country. You know, I can't tell you how many messages I, I get even still, especially now that the podcast is out from parents 
saying, I, I dropped my baby today or yesterday and I'm at the ER now and CPS is involved, what do I do? And it's really hard. I, I can tell you that I've responded to many of these families and I've reviewed um, close to 100 of their cases um, and, and find a similar pattern in many of them. But I've reached a point where I, we can't, um, we can no longer respond to everybody. It's, it, you know, it's, it's hard to know, um, impossible to know in, in a lot of cases. So, but there's the, the response has been overwhelming and it's, it's, it's picking up since the podcast is out. Have Melissa and Charday have they also heard from people? Yeah. Well, I mean, Melissa did for sure. Melissa, because their story was published before, um, you know, she heard from dozens or hundreds of, of families who have been in similar situations. Um, and Charday hadn't because we hadn't written her story before the podcast. But but recently, since the podcast has come out, um, they have had a chance to get in touch. We actually um, recorded the moment when when they talked for the first time. It was very touching. Hi, Melissa. <laughs> Hi, Charday. How are you? I'm doing all right. One thing you said in your um, in in the podcast, you said that you know you felt like if you guys were honest about everything and how you kind of like almost complimenting CPS, you know, you guys are just doing your jobs and I'm going to do everything I have to do to, to cooperate. I mean, same thing here. I mean, I remember saying all those things to them. So it felt good to know, like, you know, other people think like me would have did the same thing as I've done, you know? So I, I felt good about that. I did. You're right. But, you know, I, I felt like I was thanking them while they were taking my kids and looking back, I'm like, what was I doing? Because <laughs> you don't know. Exactly. I felt the same way. <laughs> I did the same thing. I did the same exact thing. But when you look back, yeah, you're like, what was I, what was I doing? What was I thinking? You know, I guess just trying to be sane in all of it, really, you know, just trying to yes. keep balance. I remember when Stephanie told us, you know, she didn't give us details. She just told us to watch the news. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I didn't really pay much attention because at the time, I, I didn't I didn't want to hear about nobody else's kids getting taken away. At the time, everything that was going on at the borders with the children was going on. And I just, I couldn't bear it anymore. And I remember um, Lance uh, telling me about the conversation he had with Stephanie. And then I do remember somewhat of the um, news, what, you know, you guys being on the news. And then... I remember my mom telling me about it because she she watched it and she recorded it on her phone. And so I was like, well, maybe this is, you know, what Stephanie's talking about. So I just think like, man, if, if that did not happen, it's like somebody else's misery, I guess, like in what you guys went through. I mean, if that didn't happen, I probably would not have my kids right now. I was trying to hold it in, but you... You are making me cry. I just feel like, you know, the kids are so precious and you don't ever know how you're going to make it through on the other end because I have, you know, a whole bunch of different milestones in my own journey that if this person didn't step up or if that person didn't show up and so on and so forth, I wouldn't have my kids back either. And so just to <laughs> know how it's all intertwined together is, it's really refreshing. So I'm yeah. glad that you are whole and your family is back together and that you get to touch yes. your Oh, every night I'm I'm so blessed. And and when I see like when I see you with your family and everything and I look at me and my family, it's like you would never know. Nobody never like know. walking down the street would know what we've been through. You know, because we still walk around and we still smile and we're still happy and we don't ha we don't have anger on our sleeves. Like we're not you know, we're upset and we're hurt. I know I'm hurt. I feel like a lot of my, in like a lot of about me, like a lot of my trust has been broken, but mm -hmm. I, I still walk around. I still treat people good and I, I'm just trying to be happy and, and raise my kids. So 
I see that in your family as well. You know, we're not angry with the world. We're angry about our situation, but we're not angry with the world about what happened to us. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I thank you. I just feel like you guys were just really, you guys were really sh- like, sh- y'all fought. You know, y'all, y'all seem like y'all really, really fought. And, and sometimes I just didn't have the strength to fight as hard as I wanted to. You know, I just, but I, I thank you for your story and you guys coming out there in the public eye. Because if it wasn't for your case, like I said, I, I don't know what I would have done. I don't know where my kids would be right now. So I do, I thank you guys. I really do. I really, really do. Sharda, you do not give yourself enough credit, girl. You fought... <laughs> The long, it, you ran a marathon. You fought every single day that they were not in your home. And I don't, if I had to run a marathon and not like this, you know, little 5K, I, I don't know if I would have survived it. So you need to give yourself more credit because that yeah. it, it's not easy for the duration that I endured. And I can't, I think yours was like, what three or four times as long as our battle? I was like, what eighteen or nineteen months? Am I right? It was yeah. It was almost. It was almost two years. Well, Charday, <laughs> there's a a group of us sisters. We never wanted mm-hmm. to be sisters by this way, but the next time we all get together, I want you to come and you can hear some other warrior moms, and they can hear you mm-hmm. and meet you and um. Yeah, I think it'd be really fun. It'd be really fun to just see and hug you in person. I know with COVID and everything going mm-hmm. on, it might be a little while, but when the time comes and we're able to, um, but until then, I know we'll text. Yeah, we will. And definitely, like, just let me know and, I, and I'll be there. I would love to meet, you know, other people, you know, who's been in the same situation and share our stories. It was really special for me to be on the line hearing the two of them connect for the first time. You know, I'd spent months reporting on this this story, knowing that their two stories were linked, but that they didn't know each other at all. And they have this shared bond of trauma. And it just was so tu- so touching to, to hear them um, discuss it and then talk about making plans to, to stay in touch. So you've been living and breathing this story for what two years now? I mean, what kind of uh, what kind of impact has this story had just on you moving forward? In a, you know, it, there's a certain inherited or shared trauma that you get just from he- hearing these stories, <clears throat> and I think um, one thing is. It's not, you know, it, it had the effect of turning me into a bit of a helicopter parent <laughs> um, right before we came in here to record this. Um, my almost two year old was running out the door and my dog ran out at the same time and sideswiped him and cut his feet out from under him. And he hit his head on the sidewalk <laughs> right before I walked in here. And, you know, it was like you hear that little thunk and, you know, it's, you know, it's my fourth kid. At this stage, I know that that type of fall is is not a typically a big deal. So I picked him up and I, I patted him and um, and immediately went to my wife and told her every detail of what just happened. <laughs> and I feel like I am hyper vigilant now. And if you go to the hospital and that incident has happened and they say, "Hey, they've got two fractures," okay, you know that's when you start to think about okay documentation document 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 there are a lot of kids who families who have gone through this you know and not gotten their kids back lives have been destroyed and it's hard to take all that in and think about it um it's a good reminder just to love on my kids and to spend good time with them and to not you know spend too much time worrying um because you don't know what tomorrow holds that sounds like a great note to end on (laughs) I really appreciate this, Laura. I've enjoyed talking with you. From NBC News and Wondery, this is a special episode of Do No Harm, a story about innocent children and the adults who are supposed to keep them safe. Do No Harm was written, reported, and hosted by me, Mike Hixenbaugh. 
a national investigative reporter for NBC News. Special thanks to my reporting partner, Carrie Blakinger, whose reporting made this podcast possible. If you want to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. If you have a tip about a story you think we should investigate, email us at tips at wondery.com. That's tips at wondery.com. Associate producers are Chris Siegel and Allison Bailey. Story editor is Julie Shapiro. Additional production assistance from Daniel Gonzalez. Managing producer, Leta Pandya. Sound design by Jay Rothman. Executive produced for NBC News by Steve Lichtai. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Do No Harm ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.